Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey guys, welcome into the podcast. Before we get started today, we want to do something kind of special. For the last few weeks, we have been encouraging you to call in to our call-in line and leave a voicemail. So here at the top of the episode, we want to encourage you to call in again. If you like what you hear today, if you don't like what you hear today, any of our past episodes, we want to hear your feedback. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. That's 216-800-5923. Let's take a listen to our voicemails. Hello, my name is Mike, and just wanted to say that I really enjoy the Film and Whiskey podcast uh, for Bob's expert analysis on films and all aspects of films and to listen to Brad and how he feels about films. And I am looking for a new podcast to listen to. I really had a strong desire to listen to something that combined two of my favorite things, watching films and drinking whiskey. So to my delight, I have discovered the Film and Whiskey podcast, and the podcast is a delight. Hey, this is uh, Joe. I was just calling about uh, the Iron Man episode. Just listened. Um, really enjoyed it. Um, however, um, one, I would like to say, Brad, if you saw Thor Ragnarok, and that is not your favorite Marvel movie, oof, that movie was wonderful. Um, but to talk on Iron Man, I think that movie was excellent. I would agree with you guys that the first half was very good on the character development. I really enjoyed the movie. I think that it, you guys touched on a lot of good points. Um, but yeah, love the podcast. See ya. End of messages. In 2007, director Andrew Dominic and star Brad Pitt embarked on an ambitious tale about the price of fame. In 2019, Beam Suntory continues the tradition of America's oldest whiskey. The film is the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. The whiskey is old over Holt Rye. And we'll review them both. This is the, the film, film and Whiskey, whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we're looking at the 2007 film, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Here to four, known as The Assassination of Jesse James, or just The Assassination. It is a mouthful. So Brad, this movie, over the last 10, 12 years since it's been released, has become kind of a cult classic. And even as it was released back in 07, it had a really dedicated but small following uh, that's just grown over the years. Yeah. But I feel like it still kind of flies under the radar. For sure. Had you even heard of this movie before we watched no. it? Like whatsoever. When I saw it on the list, I thought that it was probably like an old, old Western I had never heard of. Yep. Yep. And so when I saw that it was Brad Pitt, I was like, oh. Right. Was he like a child actor? And. <laughs> <laughs> But no, so I was very surprised to learn that it was a modern movie and that it wasn't 
yeah, necessarily a Western. Yeah, it's just, it's in this really interesting kind of phase that we're in now of like I think they call them the neo Western. You know, okay. um, in 2007 was huge for these kind of movies because you had this movie. You had There Will Be Blood, mm-hmm. and you had No Country for Old Men all came out in the same year. Oh, wow. And they all kind of fit this mold of Western, but not quite a Western. Yeah. So as you went into this movie, I mean, you knew it had to be about Jesse James. You knew it had to be a period piece. About a coward named Robert, or sorry, John Ford. No, Robert Robert Ford, Ford sorry. Yeah. So as you went into it, though, like, did you have any expectations for what kind of a movie it was going to be? Uh, I mean, there's there's the general consensus that you kind of hear about Jesse James, that he was an old West bandit that yeah. robbed all sorts of banks. So you definitely had some prior knowledge in that sense. But outside of that, I really don't know if I could say that I had any conceptions yeah. about what the movie was about, which makes me really excited going into a movie. It's a rare thing to be able to not have any preconceived notions to, to not be know spoiler any- free. Yeah, for sure. A movie that did that well for me was Arrival. Uh-huh. I my friends were like, hey, there's this sci-fi movie named Arrival. You should come watch it with us. It's amazing. And I hadn't seen a preview. I didn't know who was in it. I didn't know what it was about. And that I realized watching it, I was like, I haven't seen a movie in decades where I didn't know what was going to happen due oh, to a lot of the trailers or internet spoilers or yeah. friends talking about it. And I, I really enjoyed that experience. So going into this movie, I was super pumped. Yeah. Well, like I said, this movie, you know, and and I hope that I'm not including you in this, but a lot of people stayed away from it when it came into theaters in 2007. It cost about $30 million to make. It only made $4 million. It was a huge, huge flop. Wow. And part of that is because it's two and a half plus hour slow moving. Two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. Slow moving Western. Yes. And I mean, obviously, Westerns are just not popular in this day and age. But then also... This movie isn't quite what you would call a Western in the classical sense. It's a meditation on life, on fame, on legend and what it means to make a mark and things like that. And, you know, audiences just did not gravitate towards this movie at the time. Well, I think the other part that really made it struggle is that it kind of failed on all accounts. Really? It was a terrible movie. You didn't like it at all? No. Wow. So here's the thing. Uh, Brad usually kind of lets me know what he lets me know what he thinks of a movie and he didn't tell me anything about this movie. And so I've always been kind of afraid for the last couple weeks <laughs> that he wouldn't like it. Now, this is a movie that I, I picked to be on the list. It got randomized into this month. You know, I don't know that I would have picked it to be like a popular episode for us right. because not a lot of people have seen it, right. but I've seen it. I love it. I'm dedicated to it. Like, I think it's vastly underseen. And Brad hates this movie. And I was going to say, as you were talking about the the fan base that's slowly growing, that it had a dedicated fan base at the very start. Yeah. I think the reason that it that it didn't make a lot of money and it hasn't grown very much is because it's not a very it's good just movie. Interesting. Yeah. I, but I, it's not a bad enough movie to be in a, you know, trash film genre. Sure. That it's meant to be bad. It, it's just not a good film. Yeah. Interesting. I will say that on this watch... Mm-hmm. Um, again, we've talked about what it means to kind of sit down and be discerning about the movies we watch right. and watch them with a new eye. I will say that the first hour, hour and a half of this movie for me was like dragging like crazy Yeah, in a way that it didn't before. And I still feel like the last hour is great. I think that the build up to the actual assassination mm-hmm. and the aftermath 
makes for a great movie. Right. But that it takes a long, long time a to get there. Really long time to get there. Yeah. So so before we get too much farther into our opinions of the movie, um, let's do our Brad Explains segment. Brad Explains the Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. So long story short, this, this is going to be the shortest yeah, for sure. synopsis ever. Brad Pitt plays Jesse James, a famous Western bank robber. Uh, Casey Affleck plays a young 19-year-old that has been recruited into Jesse James' gang. And he absolutely adores Jesse James. He it, it, He's a childhood hero for him. And the movie slowly transposes you to the point where Casey Affleck hates Jesse James and kills him. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. I mean, what you get at the start of the movie is that there's a narrator, and I actually love the narration in this movie. It reminds me a lot of the narration in the movie Seabiscuit, where it's like an, an omniscient narrator right. who's kind of narrating from the future. Right. He was growing into middle age and was living then in a bungalow on Woodland Avenue. He installed himself in a rocking chair and smoked a cigar down in the evenings as his wife wiped her pink hands on an apron and reported happily on their two children. His children knew his legs, the sting of his mustache against their cheeks. They didn't know how their father made his living or why they so often moved. They didn't even know their father's name. A lot of his, his you know, uh, posse is gone and they have to round up people from like the foothills of wherever they are in America. Well, that's because they rat out all their posse, right? Right. And that's the implication is that they're all in prison now. And so Jesse gets this gang together and they rob one last train in, I think it's 1881. And... This film is the aftermath of that robbery. And as you watch the robbery play out, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal. Right. You know, it was actually kind of an unsuccessful robbery. But Jesse's brother, Frank, moves away. And then each member of the gang or the posse that helps him rob this train uh, slowly starts to go paranoid uh, to rat on Jesse. And then you see Jesse James morph from this. He calls himself gregarious from this sort of gregarious person. Outgoing. Yeah. To... Dressing in all black, looking like a specter of death, riding across the country to hunt down these guys and kind of picking them off one by one. And in the middle of it, you've got this essentially teenager. He's I think he's 20 years old. Right. Robert Ford, who has grown up with, like you said, an idolized image, an idealized image of who Jesse James is, realizes that's not the reality. But he still wants his 15 minutes of fame and he decides that he's going to get that. By assassinating Jesse James. He starts cooperating with the government. They give him, I think it's like 10 days to kill Jesse. Right. And the rest of the film is about Robert Ford's decision to leave his mark on history as the assassin and the way that that backfires on him. Right. And I think that there's a lot of great life lessons that you can learn from the overarching story that's being told. I just struggled massively that the way the story was told. Yeah. So what what didn't work for you? And I, like, don't say everything, but like specifically, what was the biggest challenge watching this movie for you? 
The biggest challenge was the pacing of the movie. It was slow. It It is a slow movie from start to finish. Even the assassination part is slow moving and takes like eight minutes of screen time. See, I love the assassination part because there really is some emotion to it, though. Like, you understand. I felt Spoiler alert. But, like, Jesse knows what's coming and kind of consents to it. That he is going to be assassinated by Robert Ford. And he kind of goes out on his own terms. And the thing I love about it is that he makes Robert Ford shoot him in the back, basically. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he goes out in such a way that it's like, I'm going to continue this legend of being Jesse James. Right. I'm going to make it so that you, Robert Ford, are not going to get the glory out of this. Right. And I love the fact that... This movie, you know, you talk about how a story is constructed and there's always the climax and then there's the falling action or the denouement, right? Right. This movie has probably like a 25, 30 minute denouement after he kills Jesse James. And you see that he milks it into becoming like a stage act where him and his brother reenact being the assassins of Jesse James. Right. And then when that dries up, he's just a lonely guy. And then the, the movie ends with someone coming to kill him. Right. And it's this idea of this perpetuating thing that people are seeking out fame, seeking out making themselves legends and that what Robert Ford was chasing after like was ultimately hollow or empty. And I really do love the way this movie ends. Yeah. I, I actually, the only part of the movie, the only two parts of this movie I truly enjoyed. Number one being the, the train robbery at the start. Yeah. That is probably one of the most beautifully filmed scenes I've ever seen. For sure. And it gave me... And because it happens in the first seven or eight minutes of the movie, I was just blown away. And I was like, oh, this movie is going to be amazing. Yeah. And then it wasn't. But the second part that I really liked was the very final part where he's a bartender in Colorado, I believe. Yep. And he owns his bar. And that was the very first time in the movie where I felt like Casey Affleck was a real human being. Interesting. Throughout the whole movie, he felt his acting performance felt fake and forced and like, I don't know. There's nothing genuine about it to me. His entire performance just came across as sleazy and I could not stand Casey Affleck in this movie. That, But that's the point. Like, he's not a likable character and he is just a weaselly guy the whole movie. Like... The movie doesn't paint him as the hero. I'm kind of shocked that 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 it didn't work for you because I feel like this might be to this day Casey Affleck's best performance, and he was nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Yeah, it didn't work for you. It did not work for me at all. I to me the the part that I struggled with was that he was supposed to be this young boy, yeah, who's 19 years old, 20 years old, that like. His childhood was, he was like obsessed with Jesse. And I guess maybe I was expecting more innocence from him. Like he's 19 years old and he's in a bank, you know, yeah, robbing yeah. gang. Obviously, he's not that innocent. I don't know. There was something about him that he came across like he was a 42 year old pedophile <laughs> more than a 19 year old in the presence of a rock star. So, part of what we know about Robert Ford, the real person, mm-hmm. is that he was really socially awkward. Okay. And I think that Affleck captures that perfectly. And he I think he also captures, you know, the starstruck kid that is talking to Jesse James about, you know, did you know that 
you're five foot eight and I'm five foot eight and we have the same number. And yeah. it, it is creepy because he's yeah. not a kid anymore. He's 20 years old. And the other guys in the gang are making fun of him because he still has all these dime store novels right. about, you know, the, the pulpy old West that even Jesse tells him it's all lies. Don't right. you understand that? Yeah. And I think I think it works because it shows the danger of a grown man holding on to these childhood delusions about what life is really like. And it comes across as creepy, and I think it's supposed to come across as creepy. Well, if you're part of my saying so, I guess it is interesting the many ways you and I overlap and whatnot. I mean, you begin with our daddies. Your daddy was a pastor of the New Hope Baptist Church, and my daddy was a pastor of the church in Excelsior Springs. Um, you're the youngest of three James boys, and I'm the youngest of five Ford boys. Uh, between Charlie and me is another brother, Wilbur here, with six letters in his name. And between Frank and you is another brother, Robert, also with six letters. And my Christian name is Robert, of course. You have blue eyes, I have blue eyes. You're five feet eight inches tall, I'm five feet eight inches tall. Hey, you something. Yeah, didn't didn't work for me. I liked Brad Pitt's performance. Yeah, let's talk about Brad Pitt for a minute because we got to wring some positivity out of this episode. <laughs> I this is in the middle of a run for Brad Pitt that for me like it changed my perception of Brad. I always thought Brad Pitt was a pretty good actor, but he had a run in like the mid to late 2000s where it was like this movie and Burn After Reading and Moneyball and uh Tree of Life and you know, I'm going out of order here, but Inglorious Bastards, all back to back to back to back. Right. That really just showcased the breadth of what he's able to do. I think that he had, it's almost like the Tom Cruise, where Tom Cruise took a lot of roles early in his career where he just kind of played the pretty boy. Yeah. And and played that role. And that's what he was typecast as. But as he got older, he just kind of started doing whatever the heck he wanted to. And apparently he likes running a lot, so... I mean, I think that Brad Pitt has always been willing to take risks because, I mean, he wouldn't have been in a movie like Seven or yeah. Fight Club That's if, he, true. if he wasn't. But even in those movies, you know, like a Fight Club, it's like he's got a shirt off, he's he's fighting, you right. know. What he did in, in a movie like this and in a movie like Tree of Life mm-hmm. is this really sort of subdued, underplayed, understated performance. Right. He is phenomenal in this movie. And he does the thing, too, as Jesse, where he runs the gamut between, you know, really outgoing and, as he says, gregarious and really, truly terrifying. It's you don't know what he's thinking. You don't know what he's suspecting of anybody. And it is unsettling. I think one of my most what I most appreciate about Brad Pitt as an actor, he has such a sense of power. Yeah. Of, of controlled power to him. Right. That when I think about Tree of Life, you know, I just realized we've watched a lot of Brad Pitt movies. We've seen one Brad Pitt movie, I think, per month of this podcast so far. Yeah. And it's honestly, it's just the way that the internet randomizer gave it to us. But you're right. Yeah, it was Inglorious, Tree of Life, and now this. Yeah. So. Uh, so having watched him in this, you know, mid-2000s, late-2000s, era of his acting career i just he just has a sense of power to him that's restrained especially in tree of life as the father and in this as jesse james that i i have really come to respect he he puts on a great performance seriously though i mean 06 babel which is nominated for best picture 
Then he did Ocean's 13, which is like, that's fine. Yeah. But then Assassination of Jesse James, Burn After Reading, Benjamin Button, Inglorious Bastards, Tree of Life, Moneyball in a row. Like, what a run for this guy. That That is a very impressive run. I'd be curious. We need to do the Curious Case of Benjamin Button sometime. I'd be okay with that. I think it's a good one. Yeah. So getting back to Assassination of Jesse James. Though, by the Coward. By the Coward Robert Ford. There we go. This cast, aside from the two main actors, is still stacked. Oh, yeah. And they were catching people before their big breaks. Right. So you've got people like Jeremy Renner. Yep. You've got indie actors like Paul Schneider. Yep. Um, you've also got Sam Rockwell, yep. who was really doing his supporting actor thing at the time before he blew up with three billboards a couple years ago. And even Casey Affleck at this point was relatively not... unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Sam Shepard, who's always good in every role that he ever does. Who is Sam Shepard? Uh, he was Frank. Mm. Oh, the, his older brother. Yeah. Frank James. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's good in everything he ever does. Yeah. So, uh, are there any other performances that stuck out to you as worthy of being talked about for good or for bad? I think that Jeremy Renner's character was super interesting and I actually really liked his portrayal. I struggle with Jeremy Renner in a lot of his roles uh-huh. because I, he doesn't always have a lot of depth to me in a lot of his acting roles. But in this one, I felt like he really embodied that kind of crazy cousin who's relying way too much on his relationship with Jesse. Yeah. I thought he was really interesting. The thing about Jeremy Renner for me is I think he is a good actor. I think he's very talented and I do think he brings depth, but he likes to be in the background a lot. He Mm. kind of fades into the background in a lot of his movies. And in this movie, like I thought he was good in terms of the supporting performances. I really liked Paul Schneider. I thought, you know, as the really articulate sort of womanizer, I will say that the movie devoted way too much time to that rivalry between Wood Height, who is Jeremy Renner. And Paul Schneider's character, yes. because Paul Schneider's character is basically seducing Jeremy Renner's like stepmom. Yeah. The whole movie. But I mean, it is an inciting incident because that's what kind of causes the spiral of the whole gang. Right. But they needed to stick more to that story of Jesse and Robert Ford. Yeah. You kind of get lost in some of the other gang stories. Yeah. That I just, I was like, I don't care about them at all. The movie goes away for that from them for like a half hour at a time. Yeah. I also, I really liked the, probably out of all the gang members outside of Casey and, and uh, Casey Affleck and Brad Pitt, I really liked, I, I have no idea who he is or what his actor's name is, but the the one that kind of goes crazy and he's living in the house by himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesse his, tells him to his get His name in real life is uh, Garrett uh, Dillahunt. Okay. And he's been in, he's one of those, like, that guy. Yeah, you recognize You're him. You're like, oh, that guy. It's like Paul Giamatti. I thought he was great. Yeah. I thought he was he was one of the most genuine performances where for me Casey Affleck just came off as fake the whole movie whereas he, I still think that was the intention though. Ah, see I don't I don't know. Yeah, Casey Affleck's performance just came across so weirdly to me. Yeah. that I just I I couldn't enjoy it whereas he came across as like he's genuinely weird. Yeah, yeah. in his own way and that's normal for him whereas Casey Affleck came off as like, is he cunning and trying to act weird? Yeah. Or is he genuinely socially awkward? I I can never tell. I think it's both. And I think that Casey Affleck brings these layers of kind of subtlety to his character where, you know, there are moments where Jesse and his brother at the table, like making fun of him and you see him get hurt and he responds in a way that's like a little kid. 
And so he does bring these moments of just he's an immature kid. But then you also have him saying things like, I'm capable of doing more than you think I am. And then, you know, shooting Jeremy Renner in the head and eventually killing Jesse James. I think that the movie gets at these themes of even these really immature people that don't deserve fame can make a split second decision that alters the course of history. Right. And at the end of the movie, you know, Robert Ford says something like, I didn't I didn't know what people were going to think of me. When I did this, he didn't think through the consequences of his actions. What this movie gets at in its better moments is the idea of myth making and like building a legend because Jesse understands I am a legend. He thinks it's all BS, but he also kind of recognizes his place in having to live up to that legend. Yeah. Robert Ford thinks he can just go and take it. Yeah. And that's not how it works. That's not how the American myth gets built. Yeah, and even beyond that, when you look at our common culture, or our current culture right now, you see so many people that that try to create their own legacy or create their own moment, and you never know what will happen when you put something into the public sphere. Yeah. You never know how the public is going to take it, how they're going to warp it, how they're going to make you sound, and you see that with the coward Robert Ford, that... He is known as the coward Robert Ford, not the hero Robert Ford. Exactly. And that is exactly what he wanted to be, was the hero. You see that in his his play acting with his brother that they make money off of after they kill Jesse James, that they tweak little things about what happened in reality versus what's happening in their show to make it seem like he is the hero in this moment. Yeah, for sure. And I think that this is something that I really do respect about the director and the writer of this film is that this movie was adapted from a novel that was written in the 80, 83, I think. Okay. And the title of the novel is Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. They transpose that whole thing as the title of this movie, which is like, it's such a long title. You can't even fit it on a marquee. It's unnecessary. It seems unnecessary, but I like that they retained it because... It does get at this idea of even as you go into the movie, they're helping to make this myth of Jesse James is a hero. Robert Ford is a coward. And as you get into the movie, you start to understand it's not that simple. Right. But in the American consciousness, it is that simple. Yeah. It's interesting because I think if you get into like film critique, one of the things you'll look at is that the opening scene of a movie. Yeah. Oftentimes it sets the stage for everything that's to follow. You know what I mean? And I've never thought about this before, but even just the title of the movie will be the first thing you learn about a movie before any, almost anything else. Mm -hmm. And so even in the choice of the title of a movie, whatever movie you're watching tells you something about what you're going to watch. Yeah. And I would agree. I think I'm glad that they kept the entire title, partially just so that we could say the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford at right. least 30 times in this podcast. I mean, it is great to be able to say a title that's that long and indulgent. What what title? <laughs> the, oh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Oh, good to know. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> well, Brad, we have said that title enough. I think that it might be time for us to drink some whiskey. And I thought, you know, as we talked about our whiskey selections for the month, what kind of a whiskey might Jesse James drink? And it's actually really cool because the one we decided on is actually drunk in the Old West yeah. by some really famous figures. Yes. So today we're going to be looking at Old Overholt Rye Whiskey. What do you say we give it a sample? I would love if it was better than this movie. <laughs> 
All right, guys, so today we are checking out Old Overholt Rye Whiskey. Now, this is our first rye that we're doing on the podcast. I have to be completely transparent. Rye is probably my least favorite type of whiskey. Brad, have you had any experience with rye before? Uh, I think I had a Sazerac at some point, uh-huh. but not extensive. Yeah, I like rye if it's mixed into something. Yeah. Producer Eric is joining us. Hey. hey How are you feeling about Eric. this rye? Have you, are you a rye fan? Yeah, typically I am a rye fan. So my indru- my introduction to Bullet was Bullet Rye. And my brother, the first bottle of, I would say, like, real good whiskey that got me into whiskey was Angel's Envy. Okay. So... Uh, I went down to a, a place called Barrel 44, now Barrel on High, and um, they had Angel's Envy Rye. And I was like, eh, I like Angel's Envy. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I'll throw down on this, but like, all right, I'll try the Angel's Envy Rye. It was phenomenal. It was yeah. it was outstanding. So I have, I would say, a fairly high bar to hit when yeah. it comes with rye, but I don't have a lot of experience. Now, Old Overholt is, uh, the rumor is that it is uh, said to be America's oldest continually maintained brand of whiskey. It's been around since 1810, uh, and it has had some famous adherents and drinkers over the years, including uh, the famous gunfighter Doc Holliday, Ulysses S. Grant, and President John F. Kennedy were all fans of Overholt. And even to this day, bartenders swear by this stuff, even if they do like to use it as a mixer more than as something that you drink neat. Kind of like Maker's Mark 46. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Overholt, though, is super affordable. Like This is like a $15 bottle for a fifth. Wow. I think maybe I paid like 15 to 17. It's really, really inexpensive. For a fifth that Ulysses S. Grant drank out of. The exact same one. Wow. You know what's sad about that is like you say this is a $15 bottle. Whatever my opinion was like when I smelled it. Yeah. My opinion got better. Exponentially increased, yeah, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it is. We talk about that all the time. If you've listened to the podcast before, price truly changes the way you taste yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Alcohol. I will say that... Uh, on this rye, I'm picking up the same kind of notes that I would get on like an Irish whiskey. Like it definitely tastes a little bit brighter than a bourbon does, but it's in this weird middle ground where I'm still getting some of those like mapley brown sugar notes, but I'm yeah. also getting some fruit on it. And then the nose is a lot stronger than the Irish whiskeys that I've had. Definitely. For sure. Yeah, so, you definitely feel that American pop to it. <laughs> the American pop. Yes. That's exactly what we're going to describe this as. You all know what we're talking about, right? The American pop. So what would, what would we score this out on the nose? I would probably give it a six. I think it actually smells quite pleasant. And that's coming from somebody that doesn't really care for rye. I'm going to give it a six and a half. Really? I'm going to give it a seven. A seven? Yeah, I'll give it a seven. All right, producer Eric. I'm what six do you, on the nose. Six on the nose. Let's take a swig. I'm getting fruit on the taste, too. Almost like a peach. Wow, this was significantly better. So Brad and I, full disclosure, popped this bad boy open last night to try it because I told him I didn't like rye. And we did not like it out of uh, Rock's glasses. Yeah. But we're drinking out of Glen Cairns today. And it's way sweeter than I thought it would be. It's a little bit brighter, a little bit fruitier. The brightness is what really stands out to me. Yeah. Although I will say that it is... Uh, it It's... Brad, I hate you so much, but <laughs> it's definitely got some more viscosity to it than some of the more like thinner mouthfeel, bright Irish whiskeys that we've had. I'm really glad that well, I understand this better now that you've used the word viscous. Yes, it is quite viscous comparatively, Bradley. <laughs> and I liked the way it tastes. My struggle is that it is bright without the smoothness, and I, I'm not enjoying that very much. Yeah, yeah, I get that. 
And I mean, that's obviously, that's what you get with a rye. You don't drink rye whiskey right. for the smoothness of it. It's going to be harsh. Well, then I won't drink rye whiskey at all, Bob. <laughs> I still like the way it tastes. And I will say, though, that out of a Glen Cairn. It is better. Way better. Way, way I'm better. giving this one a seven on the taste. I'm sticking with six on the taste six. for me. I'm actually going to drop it to a four. A four? Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm not enjoying the taste as much as the nose. The nose comes across with that crispness. Yeah. The smoothness gets it lost. It surprised you a bit. I get See, that. What I guess what's interesting though is like you get the alcohol on the nose, and you and you get it in the taste too. So at yeah. least the nose prepares me yeah. for what I'm getting into. And actually, not so. I've had a I've had a couple sips of it or yeah. a couple sniffs of it. So you don't get the like the oakiness and the and the charcoal and the smokiness of like a say a bourbon. Sure. Um, and you don't get the bright, you know, almost thinness of an Irish whiskey. But what I get is. Almost kind of like a, almost like a rubbery smell, and not not in an unpleasant way. Like, yeah, uh, yeah I could I definitely see pick that. it up on that at all, you guys. I don't know. Oh, I definitely it stands out to me, huh? Well, so rye whiskey, just like bourbon, has to be fifty one percent corn. Rye whiskey has to be at least fifty one percent rye in the mash bill, which we know is going to give it that spice. I do think though that it has enough sweetness that I don't get a super bitter taste on it. Even oh, no. on the finish, it doesn't linger as a bitterness. I've had bourbons that are more bitter than this, which I think says a lot about the finish on this. Right. So again, I'm going to go ahead and give this a seven on the finish. It is surprisingly smooth for a rye. I'm going to move my mine up to a six. Six? Yeah, for the finish. Producer Eric, hold on, I'm finishing. <laughs> <laughs> I made Bob snort. That's great. I'm seven on the finish. It, I am too. It lingers well. Overall balance, I, I hear what you're saying, Brad, about the fact that you get the alcohol on the nose, or the brightness on the nose, but you don't get it in the taste. Yeah. But I also hear what Eric's saying about the alcohol is present all the way through. It's all the way through. It's but honest. it's It's not, yeah. not overpowering, though. Yeah. I'm actually I, yeah, I'm really impressed with this. So I think... I'm going to give it a seven again. So I feel like I'm, I don't know, I may have uh, may have shorted it here and there on the first few categories just based on my feeling about it. Yeah. But I think overall, the entire experience, I'm going to go ahead and give it an eight on the balance. Mm. Uh, yeah, maybe pad the numbers a little bit, but I like it and I don't want it. And I want to score it like I don't like it. Like I, right. I really enjoy this. Right. We've had that issue where there's times where... One specific that I'll say, monkey shoulder. Yeah. Sometimes I look back on monkey shoulder and I'm like, that should be a 28 to 30 rating. And I yeah. think we give it like a 24. <laughs> You're like, I slaughtered well, that, but and I that's, really liked that's it. The thing yeah. that we've struggled with, you and I, that we should add a price category into this because monkey shoulder was, was good. But then the fact that it's also only $30 made it very good. Right. Can, when we when we use our descriptors for the price category, can good. we have Paul Haggis write them? <laughs> uh, the, how would you describe the price category? Oh, well, this this uh, definitely needs its welfare checks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, million dollar baby references. All right, Brad, what would you give this on the balance? Uh, six overall. Six overall, which puts Brad at a 23. It puts producer Eric at a 27. That's what I got. And it puts me also at a 27, which puts us out at an average of what? Like a 26, basically. If we're just talking me and Brad, we're at a 25. But that is still an above average rye whiskey coming from a guy, at least in myself, that does not like rye whiskey. You have $15 and you want to make a Manhattan or you want to drink it neat. Like, please shell the money out. 
for old overhaul. This is something that even if I don't personally care for it as much, I would keep in my cabinet so that if somebody came over and said, "Hey, I like rye whiskey. Do you have anything?" Absolutely. I, this well, is something I would serve. And I don't know that like I don't know that mix with this, but I definitely recommend it over ice. Yeah. For sure. Like let 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 time and yep. temperature do its thing, and I think it's going to get more pleasant as you get a little further along in the glass. And again, like I feel like I'm beating a dead horse by talking about my non-preference for rye, but like if we pulled out a bullet rye or any other, you know, whatever, you know, whatever brand you want to pull out for, for a rye, those are going to be $35. Right. I don't have enough of a difference in my mind in the way that rye tastes that I wouldn't buy this instead. Right. For 15 bucks, 17 bucks, it is totally worth it. Oh, absolutely. Brad, would you recommend? Yeah. Hesitantly? Hesitantly, yes. Okay. Under duress. Under, yeah. <laughs> yes. Gun to your head. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Have at it. Producer Eric. Yeah, I would I would recommend having tried some higher end rise, but not a lot of them. Yeah. Um I, I don't feel negatively about this. I it think stands it's, up pretty yeah, well. I yeah, I, I don't either. I would recommend, you know, again, we're not saying it's the best whiskey of all time, but it's it's definitely worth a lower end price. And for picking something up off the bottom shelf, this is quite good. I mean, yeah. I like yeah, to, to to build on that point. I've had way worse whiskeys that I've paid more for. Yeah, and I would sure. not recommend those. Right, this I'd recommend. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So, Brad, what do you say we get back to talking about the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? What a coward! What a coward! So that was Old Overholt Rye. I'm actually really impressed with this. Brad seemed less impressed than me, but I would say it was it was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, anytime you hit over 20, mm-hmm. you have a decent whiskey. Absolutely. Anytime you hit over 30, you have a really good whiskey. Yeah. So for me, yeah, 23, solid rye, especially for the fact that you you hit on this point quite a bit. I don't care for rye a ton either. Right. So that being said, it was good. Sure. Much better than this movie. We got to get back into the movie, and I'm kind of sad that you hate it as much as you do. Although, I have to say... Holding it up against some of the other movies that we've seen in the last few months, I understand why you don't like it. And it was kind of hard for me because I saw this when I was 17. Right. And I was like, man, like it was a game changer in my mind. And it yeah. was so vastly underseen. What made it a game changer for you? I think I think it's that last hour. You know, it's one of those mm-hmm. movies where you remember how it ended and it yeah. stuck the landing so well that it erased the slowness some of, of the, the first sloppiness. half. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there have been other movies like that that I've seen since. I think of a movie like Silver Linings Playbook that uh-huh. came out a few years ago. Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence. I hated everything about that movie until the last half hour. And the ending was so good that it raised my final score like a point or two. Yeah. I still didn't like the movie that much. Yeah. But I, I'm in the boat now where I have had my illusion of how good this movie is a little bit shattered. Yeah. I still think it's a good movie. Yeah. I clearly think it's a better movie than you do. <laughs> but I understand why you're in the boat that you're yeah. in. To me, the most basic comparison I could give if you've watched this podcast, to me, this is a Goodfellas that didn't change the movie world. Interesting. How so? It felt similar in the fact that it was so long and boring and drawn out. Yeah. Where, it, But Goodfellas, to me... You could see the technical brilliance of it, and you could also appreciate the historical monumentalness of it. Uh Whereas with this movie, I don't think it was technically brilliant, and I don't think it will ever be said to have made a cultural impact on movies, 
on storytelling the way that Goodfellas would. Okay, so here's my question, and I, I disagree with everything you said. Well, <laughs> that's not true. I don't disagree with the last part. I don't think this movie will ever catch on enough to be a game changer. Yeah. And clearly it didn't at the box office. But if it, if it had, like if, if it had been a, an Oscar winner, then, then it, I told it would you, have been a better movie. I'm serious though. Like, okay. how would how does that affect your perception of a movie? Like, if you don't like Goodfellas, you don't like Goodfellas, and yeah. it, I don't think it should matter if it wins every Oscar. If it's just not a good movie to you, then it, you shouldn't rate it highly. So, yeah. like, are you saying that Goodfellas' reputation influenced you in some way? I would say that more of the technical things in Goodfellas—the cutting, the editing, the things like that. I would say pushed it up higher for me. Sure. Um, as well as knowing the history of gangster films and things like that. For me, when you look at the history of Western films, which as much as I don't know if I would say this is a Western, I think it would get lumped into oh, the Western sure. category. And therefore, I say if you're looking for a prime example in the Western category of film, this is near the bottom. I would say that there's a certain type of Western that goes back a few decades, you know, that it's this more sort of like existential, uh, ethereal, moody re- Western. Right. Like even back in the 70s when Robert Altman was making movies like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, this falls into that category. And it's just not everyone's cup of tea. Yeah. And I totally get that. Um, but I, I have to take issue with you saying that it's not technically proficient because – I look. I wouldn't say proficient. It's I look, technically proficient. I look back at Roger Deakins' cinematography for this movie. This is one of the most beautifully photographed movies I think I've ever seen. It was the same thing over and over and over. You, I mean, you even called out the cinematography though. That train sequence at the beginning. The train sequence was brilliant, bar none. That was one of the most beautiful scenes ever. The yeah. rest of the movie was boring. It was brown or white colors uh-huh. throughout the entire movie. There, there was nothing to it yeah i you didn't think the, the the camera angles the setups the way that they did that sort of like distortion sometimes any of that was like noteworthy the the way that they did the old-timey film yeah. sequences yeah was interesting at first and repetitive after wow. the second or third time i'm the music the like kind of like lullaby yeah, yeah. um like a xylophone type music yeah, box yeah. type of sound the first time it happened, I was like, wow, that's really cool, which went along with the old-timey, yep, grainy yep. film. And then the 19th time they did it. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is I I didn't remember it being as repetitive as it was oh. because I've that piece of music that was made mm-hmm. for this film has become semi-famous. Yeah. They use it in clips on ESPN. They use it, you know, in, in all those sort of like short news stories. Right. And I recognize, oh, that's from Jesse James. I turn this movie on and it literally is that same piece of music cut and pasted over like and 10 over times over into the movie. I will agree with you there. Yeah. The, the score is repetitive. I'm a little upset that you're like going at my boy, Roger Deakins. So Roger Deakins is one of the world's most famous cinematographers. Okay. He had been nominated for 12 Oscars without winning until just uh, this past, not this past year, but the year before that. He finally got his Oscar for the new Blade Runner movie. Okay. But he had done movies like The Shawshank Redemption. He did Fargo. He's worked with the Coen brothers. It, actually, in 2007, he did both No Country for Old Men and Jesse James. You know, he's done uh, Skyfall. He huh. did Sicario. Some of the most beautifully photographed movies of all time. Yeah. 
And I gotta say, man, like you might not like this movie, but you can't go up my boy Roger Deakins like that. I struggled with him in this work. How come George had a grudge against you? Hmm. I said, how come George had a grudge against you? Oh. Well, you see, George had a nephew he wanted me to protect during the war. His nephew had $5,000 on him. It just so happens he winds up killed and someone swipes that money. And when George is in prison, someone whispers to him, it was Jesse James slit the boy's throat. It's just mean gossip, was it? Bob's the expert. Let's put it to him. So, literally the only thing I'm hearing you say that you like about this movie is Brad Pitt. I liked Brad Pitt well enough, but I wouldn't say this is near his best performance. Really? Yeah. He was really good in this movie, and I enjoyed him, but... See, I I always appreciate when an actor can go against type and do it convincingly. Yeah. And Brad Pitt, up to this point, was really good at playing Brad Pitt. Yeah. You know, when you watch Ocean's Eleven... Right. He coasts on being Brad Pitt. Right. And in this movie, he's... I mean, he's really intimidating at times yeah. and and calm, cool, collected, but also paranoid. I think this is one of his most layered performances. I wouldn't necessarily disagree. I just, to me, it was a good performance. I don't think it was his best. I really like him in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yeah. All right. So if we're, if we're comparing Brad Pitt movies. Yeah. Or Brad Pitt performances on the ones we've seen. So okay. you got Inglorious Bastards. Right. Tree of Life, this right. movie. Rank the Brad Pitt performances. Tree of Life, number one. Huh. Jesse, number two. Inglorious Bastards, a close three. Okay. The Inglorious is hard to put with those two. Because it's because like a silly... it's so different of a performance. Yeah. But I would put it very close to Jesse James. I am surprised that Tree of Life's performances have stuck with you as much as they have. Because there's not much room for the actors to really act in that movie. They're just yeah. kind of like props in the way. Yeah. All right. So, Brad... We might as well not delay this any longer. I know that you don't like this movie. I'm a little bit bummed because I was hoping that we would both have positive scores, that we could spin this into a couple listens for people who might not have seen this movie. But now I feel like we're going to be vastly split on this film. Yeah. Uh, If you had to give this movie a score, what would you give it? Four. A four out of ten. Now, (laughs) Brad had told me in between the whiskey segment and this final closing segment that... I was not going to like his score. And I was really afraid that Brad was going to pull a Brad on me and give it a one <laughs> just, to, just to antagonize Sometimes me. Sometimes I'm overly ridiculous just to annoy my best friends. I appreciate that even a movie that you have literally used the word terrible to describe, yeah. that you can give it a four. So the thing for me, the reason I can't go any higher than four, I came close to giving it a, a three or a five. I Man, I was really going back and forth. Yeah. The, the main reason I can't go any higher than a four is because there was one point about an hour and 10 minutes into the movie where I looked and saw that I had an hour and a half left. Yeah. And I physically got upset and angry (laughs) that you had put this movie on this list. You know what's crazy is when I put the Tree of Life on the list, I was like, dude, Brad is going to hate me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And that movie went over great with you. I... Like the, that but, movie has mellowed so well with me. But that's the beauty of this is that yeah. we're we're exposing ourselves to things here that we may not have watched in general. And yet, like 
I, you find that the tree of life is something that you really enjoy and appreciate, and yep. that this movie, which on the surface seems more appealing to you, yep. is something well, that you don't like. And the funny thing is, I would say both movies are very similar. I would I would almost call the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford a art house film. Oh, for sure. And I hated it. Yeah. Like I said, I I can't overstate. I can't understate. I literally had this feel like, you know, when you're a kid and you got sent to the principal's office and you just had that gut feeling of like, oh, like my principal's going to be pissed at me, my teacher, my parents, like yeah. I'm going to get it at home. That's kind of how I felt where I was just <laughs> like, this movie is killing me on the inside. Ugh. And I, I'm so sad that you had that reaction. I will say that my love of movies like uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is all about myth making and legend, and also my love of bringing in random narration into recent movies. This movie really did remind me a lot of Seabiscuit. Yeah. In the way that it crafted a narrative around Jesse James. I I had this movie listed at like a 9 or 10 on IMDb. Wow. And I will say that this watch brought this movie down for me. Yeah. I'm going to have to let it mellow. I'm going to have to wait a year or two and watch it again when it's not crunch time for the podcast and right. see what I think of it. As of right now... I want to give it a seven, mm-hmm. but I know that I've seen it five other times and gave it a nine. So you're going to give it an eight? I'm going to give it a seven and a half. Okay. I'll split the difference with you. Yeah. This is going to be a really low average. Yeah. This might be the lowest reviewed movie oh, it yet. it will be. For sure. Which kind of bums me out because I think I still prefer it to one or two movies on this list. Yeah. But yeah, I do think that if the last hour remained intact and they condensed the first hour and a half down into 45 minutes, yeah. it'd be... A masterpiece. I think that if they had just a little bit more action, and and the funny thing is, it's not like the opening train sequence was very action packed. Uh, like when you compare it to other action movies sure. of this era, it's not super action packed. But I think if they had had a few more scenes like that, yeah, in the maybe middle of the movie when you're kind of in the drudgery of the middle marathon, yep, I think the movie would have done a lot better. Yeah, but they didn't do that. So, so that's where we're at, guys. Uh, one out of ten. <laughs> Brad gives it a four. I give it a seven and a half, which puts us at, what, like a 5.75, I think, for the film. But we want to know what you think. Exactly. So reach out to us. We're on Instagram. At Film Whiskey. We're also on Twitter. At Film Whiskey. We're with, also on... With an E. Oh, yes. Yes. All of None our... None of this W-H-I-S-K-Y stuff. Crazy Throw that Scottish E in there. People. At Film Whiskey. Whiskey. Uh, we're also on the phone. We would love to hear your beautiful voice. Give us a call and give us your take on the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford or any of the other movies that we've watched. Yeah, give us a call at 216-800-5923. Once again, that is 216-800-5923. Also, this is still a new podcast. Reach out to your friends. If you like what you're hearing, share it. Share it on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you do it. Let people know about it. We would love to get more listeners in here and more interaction. Yeah, please go to iTunes. Give us a review. Rate us highly. If you, if you like what we're doing on the podcast, you know, we're available on every platform, but iTunes is really something that's important to us. So if, you, if you're liking what you hear, go to iTunes, give us a five-star review. And guys, for the Film and Whiskey podcast, I am Bob Book. I am not a coward, <laughs> but I am Brad G. We'll see you next time. <laughs>